It's Advent week four, and it is love. And so that's why we're going to 1 John chapter four. In verses seven through 12, love comes up 13 different times, okay? So it's like, it seems like a good one to go to if you wanna talk about love. Uh, but the idea today is this, this idea of God's love made visible, and it's made visible through God sending his son, Jesus. So God's love coming down in the form of his son, and then ultimately going out through his followers. And so God's love being made visible. And so starting in verse seven <clears throat> is where we're gonna start and just kind of take it a verse at a time. So 1 John chapter four, verse seven, it says this. Beloved, let us love one another for love is from God and whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love does not know God because God is love. Time I probably should have given you some context about our author. Uh, John is the one that's, that's writing this command. He's saying, hey, God's loved us. We should love others. But John had a nickname that was given to him. Anybody know that nickname? Who he was? One of the sons of thunder. Okay, yeah. That's from Luke chapter nine. James and John uh, how, he, how do you get a nickname like that, right? They were, Jesus was going towards Jerusalem and there's a Samaritan village and Jesus is like, hey, let's go before and, and so that they would welcome me. And they're like, yeah, we don't want to welcome Jesus. To which James and John are like, well, Luke 9, 54, the disciples, James and John saw this, saw that they were not welcoming to Jesus. <clears throat> they said, Lord, do you want us to call down fire from heaven and destroy them? I <laughs> love it. Like, <clears throat> I love John's writing this about himself. I imagine looking back a little sheepishly, but he was willing to escalate things pretty quickly. It's like, they didn't welcome you. They need to be destroyed, okay? And the reason I want to point this out is clearly there's been a transformation in our author that went from wanting to call down destruction and devastation on these people to joining the Lord in his heart and on this mission of seeing others experience the love of God and, and love others. And that's what Jesus does. He radically transforms. And our author, John, is, is living proof of that. And so it's why John, being transformed, commanded in verse seven, he says, love one another. That's the command. The explanation is, it follows, it says, love one another for love is from God. And whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love does not know God because God is love. Now I wanna give you a visual that I think really captures this principle that's gonna kind of be strung throughout the entire sermon, okay? So it's a visual that comes uh, from my time. When I was in Africa, I uh, went on a short-term trip and we were out in the bush just doing some uh, pretty laborious work, going door to door, evangelism. It was incredible. But then we got back and we had a kind of a Sabbath day rest. And so they were going to take us to a national park in Zambia, which equated to like a, pretty much like a handwritten sign nailed to a tree uh, that said Kudnalila Falls. And you park the vehicle there and you start walking back on something that's like a deer or cattle path. Like there's no, not what you would think of like when you think park. And you just start walking back, you're like, where are we going? And so you start walking uh, this trail. And then all of a sudden you start to, to hear this sound. 
I think we have this sound. So you hear this sound, and then, uh, um, and then you get to, to see this site. This is Kundalila Falls. And uh, you start on the top, and you kind of work down below, and there's these pools down below. And you kind of hear that, that sound of that water that's coming over and falling 262 feet down, crashing at the bottom. Makes sense, and perhaps you've seen more spectacular waterfalls in your life, but but for me, this was just such a reprieve after such a hard time. And we just Sabbath there, we we grilled out like on the bank on some makeshift little grill, and just enjoyed this scene. And I want to have this this sound in your head as well as this imagery because I think what John is pointing out here, he's saying this waterfall is kind of representing God's love. God is love, God's love's come down towards us, and, and we stand at the bottom of that waterfall with just our little cups under just the, the magnitude of God's love. And he said, as God has loved us, we're going to overflow in love others. That's just what's gonna, gonna happen is what he's saying here. Love is from God, and whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. This is what's gonna happen. And so with this kind of imagery in mind, I think this is what he's pointing us to, is the magnitude of God's love for us. He's gonna go on and unpack it. And the reason I want to, to kind of set that up in your mind is because John, I believe, is, is gonna really point us to, he's like, you need to understand the love that God has for you so that you can properly overflow with that sort of love, same love to others. And so he's gonna help us better understand the fullness of the kind of love we're talking about in verse nine. This is the kind of love of God. It says, in this, the love of God was made manifest among us that God sent his only son into the world so that we might live through him. One more time, it says, in this, the love of God was made manifest. Now, we don't use that language a lot, but made manifest, this is the idea to make something very clear and obvious to the eye and mind, to make manifest. A story that I think captures this, a little boy in uh, East Texas, he had a pet monkey growing up. The only problem was everybody at his elementary school did not believe he had a pet monkey because who has a pet monkey? Everybody had cats and dogs. You don't have a monkey. And so they told this little boy, you don't have a monkey. He's like, I have a monkey. No, you don't. Time came for show and tell. Little boy is like, I know what I'm taking for show and tell. Puts his monkey in a cage, covers it uh, with a blanket, and takes it and uh, waits his turn patiently for show and tell at his elementary school. Now, when it was his turn, we called, time for show and tell, reached his hand in the cage, made a little motion, monkey jumped up on his wrist, and to his class's uh, shock, he pulls the monkey out of the cage and just slings it on one of the kids in the front row. <laughs> I say, made manifest. He's like, how do you like me now? I got a monkey, and it has been made clear and obvious to your eyes and mind. Does that make sense? Made manifest that monkey. Well, okay, now reread this verse nine with me with that kind of imagery and definition. In this, the love of God 
was made manifest, clear and obvious among us when he sent his son into the world so we might live through him. God's saying, my love that I have is gonna be clear and obvious through the sending of my son, Jesus Christ, to earth. And not only that his love was made manifest through him, we might live. This is so reminiscent of what John wrote in the Gospel of John in 3.16, which was quoted during the candle lighting. It is this, that for God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. John is wanting us to understand the love of God, and he does that by pointing us to the incarnation. That is, that the Son of God came in the flesh to be the Savior of mankind. He's saying that's, that's when God's love was really made manifest. I say that, please don't ever think that Christmas is the beginning of Jesus' story. That is, theologically, that's important for you to understand. See, Jesus, being God, was there at the creation of the world. Part of a triune God, Christmas is the time where we celebrate Jesus leaving heaven, taking on flesh. So that's the incarnation, and so that's what we're celebrating, but it's not the beginning of Jesus. Now, he always has been with the Father in the Spirit. And so this is the time, though, where we celebrate uh, Jesus taking on flesh. That's the incarnation. Why was that important? And again, I don't think John is taking us on some like frivolous like theological rabbit trail. I think it's important, and it's important for us to understand that it was essential that Jesus would take on flesh for, for two reasons specifically. One, for him to be born in the flesh like we're in the flesh so that he could fulfill the law. See, we're born in the flesh, but we give way to it and we sin. We fall short of the glory of God. We get uh, things like, like tired or hangry. That's like the hungry, angry combination. Like, like Jesus, though, being born in the flesh, didn't give way to it, but instead lived a perfect life, fulfilled the law, Galatians 4.4 would say. And it was important, not only so that he could fulfill the law by living in the flesh and do what we couldn't do, it was important that he actually lived as a human so that he could die a sacrificial death for us, so that he could actually die, his body be broken, his blood shed for us. And so the incarnation makes way for that. John is pointing us to the incarnation in, in verse nine to help us understand the love that we're talking about. The, the definition of this agape love, this Selfless, sacrificial love where, where God would humbly take on flesh to come to the earth to redeem those that would have separate ourselves that are enemies of God, Romans 5 would say. Say, that's the kind of love, and that's how it was made manifest that God loved you, that he would send his son Jesus for you. Here's why I think that we need to understand that. That when God's trying to describe, or John's trying to help us understand the love that God has, why he points to Jesus. Because there's reality is, God could point to other ways that, that he loves us. It's like, don't you know that I love you? Look at 
the nice house that I've given you. Look at the healthy grandchildren that I've given you. Like, these are good and loving things. But the reality is, like, they are not the constant that Jesus is. Houses will be bought and sold. Health will come and go. Like, we will die. People we love. Like, those aren't going to be the constant source of love that Jesus is. And so he points to Jesus knowing that God can be no more good to us than what he has demonstrated through sending his son Jesus for us. So he points to the greatest goodness. In fact, if he appealed to something else, it'd be elevating those things, those, those gifts above the greatest gift. And so he doesn't do that. He said, let me just tell you about the greatest gift, the, 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 the epitome of this love being the incarnation, Jesus taking on flesh. And moreover, by Jesus doing that, verse 10 tells us furthermore what was accomplished by that. And this is love, not that we love God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be a propitiation for our sin. You're getting a couple $10 words here this morning, okay? Incarnation, then propitiation. Propitiation is a two-part act that involves appeasing the wrath of God, satisfying the wrath, but also reconciling into right relationship. That we would not only be forgiven, but we're restored. That's what Jesus does, is he satisfies the wrath of God. He took the punishment that we deserve, but more than that, Propitiation says it restores us into right relationship. To illustrate like that in kind of a modern term, uh, supposedly there's like a narrow strip of highway in South America that's highly regulated uh, for speeders. And little town makes no small amount of money uh, from pulling people over and writing them these fines. And so as the story goes one day, gal's driving down uh, the highway, going way too fast, gets pulled over. The way they operate there, though, is it's not like, hey, give us your name and address and we'll just send you a ticket by the mail. No, they want their money now. They want justice today. And so the officer would take you to the courtroom. So this gal gets pulled over and gets taken to the courtroom instantaneously. And uh, she stands before the judge. The evidence is, is, is stacked against her. She's clearly guilty. And so when presented with the evidence, the judge asked the gal, are you innocent or guilty? To which the young gal who had broken the law said, I'm guilty. And the judge says, then I find you guilty. The, the punishment being $100 fine or a night in jail and brings the gavel down. Then the judge proceeds to take off his robe, put it there on the stand, come around to the gal and put his arm around her, pull out his wallet and take out $100 to pay the fine as the gal was his daughter. So not only would the payment be paid, the, the judge is a just judge. Justice was served, but yet paid for by himself and the reconciliation that happened, restored to his daughter. Propitiation, that is what we have in Jesus, that not only is the payment made, 
but we're restored in relationship. And some of y'all need to hear that. Some of y'all need to hear that, that it's not just that you're forgiven, but we're actually restored into right relationship with God. Not because of anything we've done, but because God, like he's the one that sought us out. He's the one that loved us and pursued us. Like he gets the credit for doing all that. Sometimes I still feel like, like, wait, what happened? You did what? In the fullness of that, and John is like, like, can you understand that God first loved us? That while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. He's his propitiation. And so, moreover, he would have said a couple chapters earlier, Jesus, who reconciled us to God, he's there now before the Father, advocating for us before our Heavenly Father. More than forgiven, there's restoration, not based on our own merits, but based on Christ. And so, again, I want us to understand this, and if we could cue the waterfall noise just one more time if we do that, this would be the first time in First Family's you know, church history where you have a take-home sound, okay? Like, that, that that waterfall, like that we would understand and begin to comprehend the love that God has for us. The, the love that God has by sending his son Jesus. This agape, selfless, sacrificial, the, the greatest, fullest extent that love could have being poured out to us. And the way that this is written, I'm preaching it where it's like, let's talk about the love of God. And then let's talk about us loving others. John doesn't do that. It's just all smashed together like spaghetti. It's all interwoven. He's saying, the way God loves you, you ought to love others. And so we're gonna transition in the sermon, but we don't get to change the definition of the love that we've been talking about. Does that make sense? Like he's saying the same way that God loved you, you're gonna love others. And so what we're talking about then is uh, that we don't get to change the definition of love. The same selfless, sacrificial love that God has poured out to us, we are gonna be called to pour out to others. See it there in, in, in verse 11 and 12. He says this, Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to, what? Love. He doesn't say, so God so loved us, we ought to tolerate others. God loved us, we ought, to, we ought to like people. As God has so loved us, we also ought to love one another. No one has ever seen God, but if we love one another, God abides in us and his love is perfected in us. We've been loved with this supernatural love. And we're called to love others in that way. So much so, the verse 12, I believe, begins to allude to, it becomes such a tangible expression of God's love that it's like this extension where people can feel the love of God, this selfless, sacrificial, supernatural love. And so in verse 11 and 12, he tells us, let us love one another. That's two out of the three times in these verses he's commanded it. The first one actually happened back in the first verse, verse seven. And that one actually creates a little bit of a problem. And so I don't wanna skip it. I wanna go back to that one. What did he say in verse seven? He said this, 
Beloved, uh, we have it on the screen, 4-7 says this, that, beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God, and whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. That's verse 7. You see a little bit of a problem there. The question that one could rightfully ask is why would we need to be exhorted or commanded to love? This little guy's gonna come up and preach with me. Oh, no. Uh, why would John need to command us to do something that seemingly from the text is just gonna be out of the overflow? Does that make sense? Why do we need to be told to do it? Because he says, well, if you're uh, experiencing the love of God, you're gonna love others. Does that make sense? So it seems like it's just gonna happen organically. But you juxtapose that, then why then does he command us to do it three times if it's just gonna happen naturally? And so does this happen naturally? Or does this loving others, is it a conscious effort and is gonna require work? What's, how's that work itself out? John Piper, uh, former pastor of Bethlehem Church up in, in Minnesota, and uh, he's written a number of books. He had a, a good illustration, I think, on how does this work, you know, this tension. Uh, he uses an illustration of uh, a baby girl being born uh, to a mother and father, and God uh, giving a promise to that mother, saying this little baby, baby girl that you're about to give birth to, uh, she's going to live to be the ripe old age of 100 years old. And then uh, once she's lived a full life, I'm going to call her home to be with me. And so this mom had this promise. She gives birth to this baby girl. And uh, they take the baby girl home. And uh, man, we, we can be pretty perceptive at times. Uh, the dad noticed that the little baby girl's crying, but the mother's not feeding the child. And dad, being perceptive, goes to the mom and said, um, notice that you're not feeding our, our baby girl. What? Why? And the mom said, well, God promised me that he was going to allow this baby to grow to the age of 100. And God keeps his promises. And so I don't need to feed that baby because God's going to provide and dad, being perceptive, <laughs> how do you know that, that God's intention to provide for that child wasn't going to be through the arms of a nurturing mother? And how do you know that, that when God gave that promise, perhaps that he didn't intend to fill it either through you or perhaps in your negligence, striking you dead and raising somebody else to nurture, uh, raising somebody else up? to nurture this baby. So the mother didn't have any response. And, and I think the, the reason that the illustration is helpful is because when we think about this like love, is it gonna happen natural or not? I think that things like staying under the waterfall of God's love through reading his word, through prayer, through fellowshipping with others, Walking in obedience, these are the God-ordained channels of our preservation, the, the God-ordained ways that we're to be overflowing with that love. And when we pull ourselves out of those, 
put ourselves in a tough position. Dallas Willard said it like this. He said, grace is not opposed to effort. It's opposed to earning. Question, is it gonna take work to actually cultivate a love for God and a love for others? Yeah, probably, which is why Todd rightly pointed out in regards to joy last week, this, our theme of joy. Todd said, uh, we access joy through obedience. John, I don't, I, I think we have a problem because we have an aversion where it's like, we don't wanna be works-based and anything like that. And so we create these problems and we're not talking about works that earn us favor with God, but because of the favor we have with God through Jesus, we do get to work. And John would have been there, that our same author would have, who's interwoven these things, he would have heard Jesus say in John 15, Jesus said, hey, if a man remains in me and I in him, he's gonna bear much fruit, but apart from me, you can do nothing. You need to abide, you need to remain. And it's, a, it's an active kind of remaining. And so that is why I think even with these kind of theological truths, John gives the command three times in six verses to love one another, knowing that it's gonna require effort. Could it be that, that just as it was with the baby, God's plan for you to supernaturally love might be cultivated in the most natural of ways, cultivated by things like reading your Bible. And I know that doesn't sound like, like a big supernatural thing, but, but think about it. This is God's word. Somebody told me one time when I, early on in my walk with the Lord, like, you wanna hear God speak? Like, absolutely. Read your Bible out loud. Like, this is God's word. It, it, he's spoken to us. Like, do you spend time in God's word? And I think, honestly, with the new year, it gives way an opportunity to develop some, some new habits of like Bible reading to hear from the Lord. Again, it's a God-ordained kind of way for our preservation for us to really overflow with love by drawing closer to the source of that love. Prayer, communicating with him. And somebody in our small group, we're just talking, it's, it's more like thankfulness coming from a thankfulness, if you will. Like just thinking about the ways God's provided. Again, I believe those keep us closer to the source. Accessing that joy through obedience, reviewing, meditating on his attributes. These are ways that we cultivate staying under the waterfall of God's love. But I think there's a cultivation of like loving others. Again, that it's, it ought to be natural, but there is some preservation like that we need to do, some things that we need to do to cultivate that. And I think verse 10 gives us an indicator of one thing that we're to be able uh, to be doing. Let's look at verse 10 together. <clears throat> and this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be a propitiation for our sins. Just want you to notice that, that God didn't wait for us to respond. God didn't wait, but God loved us, and he loved first, and he pursued us. Romans 5.10, that while we were enemies, Christ died for us. It's not, I love it, he said, it's not that we love God, but that he loved us and took action. It's the kind of love that God's gonna call us to be about is the kind of love that he's had for us. 
selfless, sacrificial, serving love, but also what we see in verse 10 is the kind of love that takes initiative. It's the kind of love that doesn't wait, but actually goes out and takes initiative. That's the kind of love that God has had for us. And so I would just want to ask, like, do we love like that? Are we the kind of people that be willing to take initiative? And again, I just wanted some low-hanging fruit ones, not even like these deep, agape, selfless, sacrificial examples, but just the starting in the shallow end. It's like dads, I just want to the dads. Dads, are we ones that are taking initiative with our families, leading devotionals with them, praying with our wives, like, are we being intentional to make memories? Again, that initiative. Dad, are you taking initiative? Church, are we taking initiative this Christmas season with, with those around us to, to initiate a loving gesture? And again, I'm not talking about the, the full-on waterfall, like agape love towards people. I'm just saying, are we taking initiative to just appreciate those around us. And I'm challenged, like, seeing people just love their kid's bus driver, you know, this Christmas season, or the guys that, that haul your trash out when it's 10 degrees outside. Like, are we initiating, like, showing love? Because, again, we have a God that initiates love. Like, do we do that? Say, grandparents, have you initiated kind of love towards your grandchildren in the way of just sharing your testimony? Have they ever heard your God story, your testimony of what God has done? Here's the thing, grandparents, like at Christmas time, you all give the best gifts, okay? And we're all gonna be at your house and all those kids are gonna wanna unwrap those gifts. Like you have, the floor is yours, okay? So you get to set the agenda. I'm saying, have you ever taken the opportunity to say, can I just tell you about the gift of Jesus that I've received? Like to take initiative in those ways, to love in those ways, I think is what the, the text is calling us to be thoughtful in those ways, the way that, that God has loved us and certainly intentionally in taking the initiative, like we love others in those same ways. And I think Advent this time is, is getting our hearts uh, aligned uh, which means aligning with God and his heart of love. And so I think the verse, rather than a take-home truth, I would just give you a verse to, to memorize, and it's right from 1 John, uh, verse 11. It's just this. This is the concept we've been talking about all morning. And again, I should have probably apologized on the front end. This is, you're at church and you're, you're hearing like, hey, God loves you. It's like, that's yeah, not a new concept, but hopefully the fullness of what he's talking about here. And here's the take-home verse. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. Not changing the definition of love, but the kind of love that God has loved us with, we also ought to love one another. That's a given from the text. And, and John doesn't give this caveat where he's like, well, unless... You go to the waterfall and you can find some crevice to stand under where you can like experience the love of God, but there's no one else that you have to love. Like he doesn't give that caveat. And moreover, 
He's like, and you can't say that you actually love people, but you don't experience the love of God. But it's this principle that is at play, that if God has so loved us, we also ought to overflow. We also ought to love one another, 1 John 4, 11. And I would just say, first family, if we're going to make God's love visible and we're gonna reach our city, we're gonna reach the lost in our families and our workplaces, if we're gonna make God's love visible and have the gospel go forth, then we have to be a people that know well the love that God has for us and be willing to overflow with that same selfless, sacrificial love to others.